Welcome everybody, this is going to be an interesting one. Jay, how you doing? Uh, yeah, very well. Thank you, James. Busy weekend and busy week. It's not very often. I think this is the first time we've done back-to-back po- podcasts, isn't it? Yeah. Two double it Mondays is. in a row, which is... Yeah, really pleased. Yeah, it's very, very good. Um, yeah, very well. How, how are you? How's it? Very good. Excited about this one. Um, for everybody that's watching um, and listening, we've got uh, Professor Adam Nichols with us who's a sports and exercise psychologist. Is that correct? Is that the, is correct, the full yeah. title? Yeah. Um, who's written many books on um, how to deal with um, psychology in sports, not only sports, but rugby as well. He's uh, produced a book, uh, which I'm trying to get my way through at the moment, Rugby uh, Focused for Rugby. Um, and you've got a new book out now as well, haven't you? Um, or third yeah. edition of, of... Third edition, of, yeah, I don't know if that... <laughs> there you go that's it so yeah it's psychology and sports coaching theory and practice and it's just a variety of different chapters on how coaches can incorporate psychology within their coaching and a lot of it's based on research but it's written in a manner that is is very much practical it's, what i try and do is i try and explain you know the underpinning research and then how the coaches can apply it within their practice that's cool yeah really cool looking forward to getting into that but we'll have a bit of a warm-up five minutes at the beginning as we do and we'll talk a little bit about rugby like rugby fans like to do and i think really we can only mention the fact that the premiership started the weekend and how good is ellis genge yeah um i mean talk about you know making your you know debut for well he's been there before isn't he you know did he play senior again did he play senior rugby there though I don't know if he was in like the academy or whatever, but you know, for him to you know come home, and I know Bristol have been slapping it all over, all over social media about you know him coming home and stuff like that. But you know, to score two tries in the way he did in a local derby is is pretty big. Um, I'm gutted that unfortunately it didn't end up being uh, televised for the obvious. But um, you know, you got uh, Will Butt who. Um, used to play here and grew up through the uh, age groups and stuff like that. And, you know, he started at outside centre and I think he uh, got a yellow card as well, which is, uh, (laughs) I haven't messaged him yet and given him some stick about that. But yeah, I think I didn't get to watch much premiership because I'd sort of planned to watch stuff on the Friday night. And then obviously that, that didn't happen. And then play myself on the Saturday, but then try and watch as many of the highlights, but did watch um, just again, a really odd, game of rugby on the Sunday with Gloucester Wasps and you know Gloucester were 21-0 down at half time down and out and mm. you know all the comments and as soon as they um, um, you know they they whack out that stat of you know oh, if Gloucester came back and did this it would be their biggest premiership comeback ever and I was like probably gonna do that now but you know you say that a bit jestingly but then you know you look back at some of the stuff Bristol have done in seasons gone by and the way that Wasps just fell apart and Gloucester just kept building on momentum, momentum, momentum. And, you know, the shed gets behind him and stuff like that. And those two quick tries was just, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I don't know. I find the first game of the season, particularly at any level, really, is always a bit rusty. It doesn't matter mm. how many pre-game, you know, pre-season games you play. Mentally coming into that sort of side of it is quite, it's quite challenging. And I just thought, you know, 
I played against Bridport on Saturday and they looked a bit off. We played, we felt a bit off, you know, and then you look at the pre- the premiership side of it and the pro side of it, they looked a bit off as well. Just like the skill set you would expect to see at that level just needs to be a bit higher on the first opening weekend. But, you know, people are getting into it still, aren't they? What about yourself, Adam? Have you watched any of the rugby? Uh, Ellis Genge is just, he's got to be the world's best uh, uh, loose head prop at the moment, hasn't he? He's just amazing. I think, I'm sure I read somewhere that he's actually kind of dedicating a bit more of himself to rugby. And I've seen videos on his Instagram where he's, you know, with a physio doing lots of stretches. And he just looks, physically, he looks, he looks really good, doesn't he, at the moment? He just looks more athletic, bigger, stronger. I just, yeah. Unstoppable, isn't he? Unstoppable at um, every weekend. Yeah. But yeah, for the for the highlights. But um, yeah, I mean, like you say, if that's him putting a little more effort in, makes you wonder what else he's got in the tank. If he can, if he can really, you know, focus down on things, and you know, where could he go? Yeah, I think will he be coming into his prime now? Maybe the next few years are going to be his prime, aren't they? So I guess with the front row, it's a balance, isn't it, between experience and developing the strength and everything. But yeah, he's just, yeah, brilliant. He's a, he's a baby rhino at the moment. Yeah? I hate to see him as a fully grown rhino, mm. if that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, you know, it's spoken a lot about in the media, isn't it? You know, he has not gone back to Bristol for anything other than personal reasons. Now, there's lots of different reasons of what personal reasons could mean. Um, but he certainly looked happy, didn't he? You know, he when he you know he led their their song at the end. You know, Blackbird by the Wurzels. Mm, you know mm, that one. Mm. And, you know, he led that and stuff like that. And you know, the chat that the boys already had with him and stuff like that. You know, I think you look at different types of signings. When people go for money, it's one thing. But you know, he was actively wanted to go there. You know, he just won the Premiership, mm. and he's gone to a club that where did Bristol finish? Like seventh. I don't know. It's got to be for a a reason or so, isn't it? But yeah, impressed. Very impressed with him. That that comment um, Jay just made, Adam, about him looking happy. Um, and when we talk about players, good players that don't perform in some clubs and then perform in other clubs, there seems to be no difference in the way they train or anything like that. Is happy that much of an influence? Yeah, I'd say it's kind of happy, being supported, uh, your relationship with the coach, relationship with the players. And sometimes players just maybe don't get on with a coach. And, you know, I've heard examples of that in the past. And it might, or the particular coach might not be just good enough at getting uh, the best out of certain players. Uh, but yeah, if you're happy away from the away from the pitch, away from training, then it's one less stressor to think about. And then actually it's freeing you up to give your best when you're training, when you're playing, because you can actually concentrate fully. I think there's a myth that, you know, we see athletes as these, you know, really fit, strong people, but actually, you know, they are people, they have worries. And some of the research we've done, we've looked at stresses both uh, during matches and outside of matches. And actually it's the stresses around out in the, you know, the player's personal life and home life, which actually impact upon them during matches massively. So, yes, it's really important that, you know, that players are happy and, and, and I guess feel cared for, feel a sense of belonging and feel kind of related to the environment that they're in. As, um, um, Joe Marler's talked a lot about this, hasn't he? Um, you know, he's, he's achieved a lot. Um, he seems to have performed, but off the pitch, he seems to have struggled more so than on the pitch. Um, and I, I did my best to read you know, the papers that you sent through 
to read and understand them as best as I could do in my limited capacity. But what I was acutely aware of reading through your papers was when you asked the, um, uh, and that was on the, the stresses and the effects on, on you know, matches, training and all the rest of it, how much stuff that you wouldn't think about generally that would be a stressor, like you said, like the weather or, or home life or, you know, just things like that, that were generally normal things that you wouldn't think you'd bring to, to training or a match. Yeah, so so I've done some research with in the other card rugby league where we 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 pretty much managed to get most of the super league players to complete an assessment of uh, of anxiety, depression, and well being, and the rugby league players actually scored higher than the general public for both anxiety and depression, depressive states. And you think about it, a lot of it is you know job insecurity. You know, Generally, most players have what a two-year contract at most. They don't know what will happen after that if they get injured. The pressures of of, of having to play as well, and and I and I think this trend relates to kind of most professional athletes. When you're talking a bit about Joe Marler, it you know it's not surprising, unfortunately, that you know that he is having some issues because they are common common among professional and elite athletes. They're very widespread. I think now. Uh, I, I certainly know in rugby league that they're spending a lot more time and effort in, in terms of helping players. All of the clubs have wellbeing offices now and, and they're really trying to support their mental health. But, but I guess there's only so much that, you know, that the, the clubs can do because the underlying cause in some cases is this, this lack of security, uh, knowing that they may only have one or two years more, more in their career. And, how players can deal with that it's it's difficult so a lot of it you know in terms of helping players plan for their life after sport is important but then if you're a 22 year old rugby player professional player you've not really done anything else you, you know you probably think you're going to play for you know for uh, for years I, I remember once I was actually a dissertation student to a rugby, rugby professional rugby union player who played England under 21s and he played first team in the premiership when he was 18 you know, and he thought he was going to have a... He told me this himself. He thought he was going to go and play for the British Irish Lions, England lots of times. You know, he was retired at 25, hadn't played in the Championship for two seasons. And it's just... But it's that, that mindset and how, you know, it's like asking and encouraging players to, to look at, you know, try and find things to do after their rugby career. At the time, they may not be interested in doing that because they you know, they think they're going to play forever. I... Um, and this perhaps this might be something we come on to a while ago. I, I read years ago um uh, a player that uh, was in a similar situation i think he was about 18 19 and he was i think he'd signed with newcastle and he was looking to be sort of the next big thing on the international stage and he had a horrendous leg injury that finished his career um and he went through a few years i can't i wish i could remember the chap's name but he went through a few years of depression and anxiety and he said afterwards he came out the other side realizing he had a good education and actually he could he could still have a good life but he said while he was being treated for his depression and and anxiety he said they treated him for bereavement because it was it was a loss of the life he was expecting to have because he was absolutely you know nailed on that was it but um that's one of the key differences if you look at like the demographics of rugby union and rugby league players so traditionally i can't remember what the percentage of rugby union players who have been to private school 
it's very different probably education to the you know the majority of rugby league players so they're probably less prepared in terms of their education for their life outside of rugby but you know you still imagine that you know regardless of sport type there is still that that prevalence of of, of anxiety and depression and also reduced well-being hmm. uh, all yeah. from professionalism do you think it was there before the game before union went professional it's difficult to say that it's difficult to say, is it? But I suppose that before then, the players weren't relying on it, their sport was wasn't their 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 income, was it? Their their career. Uh, I don't know, but I know it existed across all you know Olympic sports, team sports, individual sports. Ours was the first to do rugby league, but it was there's lots from different countries as well, and it's very very similar findings. Mm. Should we kick off our first half? Okay, very okay. Um, so, uh, we've got Professor Adam Nichols with us, um, who's um, come to help us understand the psychology side of rugby, which I've been looking forward to a long time. Um, Adam, the first half, we're going to just ask you about yourself. Um, I think we kick off probably, how did you get into psychology and specifically start looking at rugby? Yes, how I got into psychology. So I was, I, my plans were to be a PE teacher. Uh, so I did a degree in uh, psychology and physical education at University of Leeds. And then you make a decision whether you're going to be a PE teacher and do a PGCHE, or I decided I wanted to go and do a master's in sports psychology. I wanted to specialise more. And I actually did think I did want to do research at that point. So I kind of, fairly early on, so that, and how I got into psychology, I guess, first, I had an interest in that because I played sport, a few different sports uh, when I was younger. So I was kind of tennis champion, but kind of realised I wasn't kind of fulfilling, I guess, fulfilling what I thought my ability was. I didn't think my results were matching what I could be doing. And I always thought I was actually lacking something. And, you know, maybe, you know, with the stress a little bit. Uh, and then I played rugby, so I played Colts rugby. And then I... Uh, 18 and I played some adults rugby which I think it was about national three I benched a few times for a club as and I was a fly half mm. and again it was you know in training I, I knew I could kick really well and you know I, and easy and it, my, my percentage was really good but when it came to some of the matches particularly when I I started playing in this the adults team it, it just yeah it, it, it kind of went to pieces a little bit uh, so that was where my interest in psychology came from and then the, the interest in the rugby things quite how it, how I, I developed in that was uh, so I, I've been a kicker myself, played golf as well. I was really interested in the, the kicking side of of the, of the rugby game, and uh, I'd written a paper. My friend at the time was a uh, head of strength and conditioning at uh, an Irish one of the Irish provinces, so I had access to their their team. So I did some research with that because I was really interested in uh, kicking. I contacted John Callard. So at this time, I was living in Leeds. He lived in Harrogate. He still, I think he still lives in Harrogate. And at this point, he had just been appointed the director of, of a, a kind of, it was an academy director, but it also just got the gig of being national kicking coach from England first all the way down to like the pathways. So we met up in a, met up in a pub and we, we had a chat about kind of what he was interested in, what, you know, kind of what I would be interested in doing. And then it kind of just went went from there. And then uh, the book Focus from Rugby came along 
through, uh, he wanted some psychological support and it was agreed that we kind of worked together on the book and I would offer some support to some of his players through him. And I think at that point, most sports psychologists worked actively with players, whereas, you know, he didn't, he didn't want, I, you know, I'm sure I could speak for me, he doesn't really like psychologists. I, I hope he liked me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure he probably did a little bit. And, uh, and he decided that, actually, you know, I don't want you going and speaking to whoever, you know, all some of the players he was working with at the time. You know, I'll do that, but I want to be, you know, I want not advice, but information. And so a lot of the research findings, you know, we discussed them and actually, you know, how it kind of relates and how he could interpret them and speak to them from players and use it as a coaching perspective. So that's how it, that's how that came along. So interesting psychology through my own uh, deficiencies, I guess. And then that rugby was linking into the kicking, mainly the kicking side, I guess, at first. But then more so the other players as well, other positions. So did uh, you have did you have some psychology um, support no, when you were playing? It was it? No, nothing. So I'm mid forties now, and uh, I don't think there was much around then, to be honest. Uh, no, certainly no, nothing. And so the tennis, I went. So I played national events a few times, but there was nothing ever down there. Nothing. I may, maybe if I'd have got you know, a bit higher into the England team, maybe, I'm sure, maybe would have got something. But, I, yeah, I don't... I, there probably weren't that many qualified sports psychologists around at that point. I know in the mid... This was mid-90s, mid to late-90s. I know England had, is it Austin Swain working for them in the 1995 World Cup? Because JC, John Carr played at that World Cup mm. then. And I know he went away with the team. Uh, but, yeah, I don't think there was a great deal, great deal around at that point. So you mentioned that you were working, I suppose, alongside John Callard when he was national kicking coach. Yeah. You didn't you didn't work directly with the kickers then, you were just working giving him support and then Yeah, when work. I yeah, when I say work with him, it was the occasional call. You know, when we were working on the book, we'd obviously talk about things and uh, you know, there's a couple of times where he maybe mentioned a player or not not by name or anything. And then so no, no contact with the players, just through supporting supporting him. And that's quite common now. So I had a, one of the people I did a PhD with, he worked uh, for an AFL side in uh, Melbourne in Australia and he worked directly with the coaches. Uh, and, and, I, and I know quite a few others, uh, particularly in England rugby, where they've worked and supported the coaches only, not the players. And that was under, under Eddie Jones as well. Have you not done any of that then? You not worked directly with... Yeah, so I've worked. So yeah. when I so when I, I just finished my PhD, I worked with uh, Leeds Academy for quite a few years. It, when I say work with them, it, I was a full time academic at Leeds uh, Leeds Beckett, but I, I did quite a few uh, evenings with them. So it was just so I met Stuart Lancaster just as he left the academy and then became head coach of the first team. Uh, so I worked with his. His, uh, his, pre, his the guy who came in after him, Dick and Edwards. So I did quite a few things, quite a few presentations working with the, the club's academy players. And quite a few of them have gone on to have quite, you know, quite good careers. And I did quite a lot of research uh, with the club at, at, at that point, particularly the, their academy players. Mm -hmm. so which, you know, which was interesting. It's, and it's been interesting just to follow some of the, you know, the players' careers, not, you know, some of them, you know, didn't participate in the research, but knowing kind of 
where they come from and you know going on quite a few goals to play for England as well so who's that Luther Burrell uh yeah. Keenan Minel did he play for England? maybe play for England Saxons there's a few a few like that Danny Kerr been there a bit a bit earlier Callum Clark there was and then just also following the guys who maybe didn't go on and do that well in rugby but they're doing well in in other areas of their career hmm. Uh, it's been really interesting. It's the same with golf. And I've done some studies with golfers. You just look at and you think, you know, you see some of them when they're young and then they go on and, yeah. And, have, you know, have careers on the European tour or, or whatever, yeah. What's the, like, you know, the biggest difference for you when you work with, say, someone within golf or within rugby? What's the, is there a massive difference between rugby and the other athletes you work with in different sports? Or is it just... It's all quite the same thing. It just the only difference is the type of ball they play with. Yeah, I think yeah. When you look at those who uh, who do well in anything, well, particularly sport, I wouldn't say that there are any differences. I'd say probably the rugby players a bit more disciplined in their training and diet and lifestyle. <laughs> uh, but then again, you know, golf has gone has gone that way now. But no, no, yeah, it's when I yeah when I think about. You know, people, players I've met in the research that I've done as well. It's, it's, yeah. I wouldn't say there's a there's a difference. There's a, there's a commonality among the, the high level performers in terms of their desire, their attitude. Because uh, that's one thing. You know, I often think about this. Is uh, so when I did some bits and pieces with the academy, uh, so Stuart Lancaster's, uh, they were all his players at the time. Bar one, all of them were really, really good lads. All of them were such, you know, good, hardworking, you know, just good people. And I often wonder, I've never asked him, because I'm not in contact with him at all now. That's something I probably would like to ask him in the future is, you know, when he was picking those players for the academy, was it, you know, how much of it was based on their, on their character? And I think it's got to be, because a lot of it has got to be, because you can't, you know, suddenly have a, you know, 15 or 16 academy lads who are all of them, are, you know, they're all, you know, just you could see you could see the commonalities between them, and and that's often something that I thought about is to what extent did he kind of see their character and and pick them based on that. It's interesting. I was because I was I've been trying to get through your book. I haven't finished it yet. Um, but there was uh, where is it? Mental toughness. I was looking at specifically, um, and you you go into great details in there about mental toughness not just being that you can push through a, an injury or push through a play but it's having the ability to to think clearly to understand the situation and be positive about it and and create a positive out positive outcome even when your body might be exhausted you're still thinking clearly uh, and and you talk about lessons and steps in there but surely and and also with the confidence stuff that you talk about later on in the book, how much of that is inbuilt into people to be able to do that? How much of it is coachable? How much of it is trainable? Yeah, so I think, yeah, so a couple of points. I think the first one that you mentioned, like, so Brian Ashton wrote the, the foreword to the book and he actually specifically commented on mental toughness. And he said, that, you know, you've all seen the macho player who then, you know, goes and commits a stupid foul, which lets the team down that's not mental toughness, even though he might, you know, be an aggressive player. That's not mental toughness. 
But yeah, so how much of it can be developed? So this, so a few years ago, I gave a presentation to uh, Super League Academy uh, managers. So this was based on most of the Academy League managers there were all ex-pros, hardened rugby league international pros who are now, you know, Academy directors. And I, and I get the general feeling from them is that you either, you've either got mental toughness or you don't have mental toughness. So basically my presentation was... Uh, <laughs> I really because I can't develop it if they don't have it they don't have it so yeah so what we so there is evidence based to show that mental toughness can be improved so there's been interventions that are being carried out there was one really good one by some researchers in Wales with the English uh, cricket academy players it was conducted over a number of years and what they did is they created stressful situations for the players so by that they'd ask them to perform under pressure so it might be bowling or batting drills and there will be a consequence so if you uh, I don't know you don't perform well you have to do more fitness training or you have some form of consequence without being you know not bullying but just to give the player something to you know a bit of stress they would then teach them uh, some stress management techniques and what they found is that players can get used to performing under pressure and performing well under pressure which is what I think mental toughness is essentially being able to make effective decisions under pressure. And, and that study showed that it, it can be increased. And I think there's lots, of, there's lots, I know there's lots of other research that's shown that we can improve people's ability to play under stressful situations. It's, it's interesting you, you talk about stuff like that because, you know, something as a, a coach that I hear other coaches talk a lot about is, you know, there's two things that, you know, coaches bang on about and they go, you know, one is they never have enough time with players. You know, you speak to any, you know, if I speak to an academy coach, they haven't got enough time with their players and they see him six days a week. You know, you speak to, you know, one of the under 15 coaches down here and he sees, you know, his group of players once a week. That's not enough time either. You know, so what is enough time? But then the other side of it is how they make them, particularly in an under 18 sort of environment and below, how they make people more resilient to when stuff goes wrong. So when the referee does something they don't like, you know, when they feel that it's not going their way, when it's hammering it down, when it's cold, you know, how do you create those sort of environments, environments at training, particularly in a grassroots sort of environment? So what would you say to a, a coach that's, you know, on their own working with a group of players? How do you stop your under-11s team when it starts, you know, getting all rainy and horrible? How do you stop them from going, actually, mum, dad, I don't want to play on on Sunday, how do you how do you train for that? Yeah, that's a really good point. Is that this this lack of time that coaches have, and across all you know across all levels of the game, is so why would they dedicate any time to spending time with the players for psychology when they don't have enough time for you know what they see maybe perhaps more important areas or other areas that they need to work on, which is a wrong mindset because yeah, it's, but then if you're in that situation where you so then how so what how, what's the solution then so. What, one thing I kind of do when I've worked with coaches is trying to incorporate some key psychological principles within the coaching practice. So working with the coaches so they can develop an environment in which players feel supported, uh, cared for, but also challenged. I think that's the, the, the crucial aspect. Because if, if you don't feel challenged when you're training, how can you then deal with that in a match situation? So it's about increasing the levels of uh, 
of, I, I guess, of, of challenge and stress within training, but at the same time, supporting the players and teaching them, you know, how to manage that stress. It, it might not be, you know, it's not, it's, you know, simple things. So deep breathing techniques, blocking out if the referee is being given some wrong calls, mm. accepting that maybe all referees will make bad calls. So again, just, you know, five minute conversations in, in training and matches, start of matches, whatever the referee does today, we're not going to let that get on top of us. You know, we've got to accept the decisions that are being made and then we will then focus on the next thing that we're going to do, which is what we've been working on in training. Uh, and so I get... I, so I guess things like that, so trying to incorporate, so for, in terms of enhancing pressure, smaller sided games, decreasing the size of the pitch, just little things to give players less time on the ball, less time to make decisions, which will then, and then offer them as solutions of how they can then try and deal with that situation. It might be, you know, releasing the ball quicker or looking into space more effectively. And that, that then building that in and then progressing that as they, as they improve. And then hopefully that should transform into matches. So that's a simple way, but I think highly effective way of incorporating some key psychological principles within training, which can then go through into, into match situations without necessarily sitting down, you know, sitting down. Some players, some teams probably don't have a clubhouse either where their players can all sit down and they can talk and, and, and you know, give presentations. So you don't necessarily, you don't need that at all. It's, but it's about kind of working with the resources that you have to try and implement those key messages, I think. It's really interesting. We had Mike Ford on um, uh, a few podcasts ago and he was talking about when he was at Bath and how he was um, creating the, the ability for players to get over stresses in the game. And he was saying exactly that, wasn't he? That he would, he would set up a, a, a game tell the one side that they could commit fouls and tell the referee to ignore them just to see how the, the other team coped with something that seemed unfair within the game. The, the referee wasn't picking up on it. They were getting away with it. How did it affect them um, mentally and how did they cope with it? Yeah, we, you know, we, we've done that before here and stuff like that. And I'm a big, big fan of it. You know, I always, always choose, you know, the open side and say, look, for this semi-contact game, there are no rules for you. You can go in at the side, you can lie all over the ball, you can be offside, you can tackle the nine, you know, you can do whatever you want. And, you know, they just, they get so upset about it. And, you know, he enjoys it. You know, he's like, oh, that doesn't bother me. You know, they're all going, what are you doing? You're ruining training. Why are you doing stuff like that? And then we speak about it afterwards and it's such a powerful conversation to have, you know, I didn't have to say anything in that conversation. Just go, guys, how did you uh, feel that um, he was allowed to do all of that? You know, what what was that making you feel? Like, well, this was unfair. You weren't doing You weren't doing that. And then you ask him, you know, can you explain what I asked you to do? Can you explain why I gave you that role? And then they're off and they're having that conversation. And then without me even saying anything, they bring it back to a Sunday and go, oh, well, actually, you know, player A from Bournemouth was, you know, we were, we were struggling with that and, now we've been in that situation in a safe environment. They feel they can express how they truly feel. They can deal with it a lot better on a Sunday. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's really important is that. And it's also about if you're creating those environments to make sure you give them kind of solutions for how you will react again. So what will you do when that happens in the next match or if it happens? Deep breathing, 
going back to all these, you know, really basic psychological skills that players can use in the heat of the moment, blocking out negative thoughts, uh, that that sort of controlling, uh, yeah, sort of positive self-talk, sort of telling themselves that, you know, they can be successful, they can get over the, the, the previous setback or if they've missed a tackle. So it's all, it's, it's about creating this, like say, this safe environment with some challenges, but then giving the players resources to be able to manage those and then to grow from that. I think that's really important. So we, um, Jay's one of the coaches and I'm one of the managers at the academy down here at Wimborne and um, we see you know, regularly in games where um, the game will start off and Wimborne will be immediately on the back foot and go down to an early try from the opposition. And you see them trying to get their heads around it together and, and some are better at it and some aren't so good about it. And it might come from a, um, from a mistake from, you know, from a defending player or whatever. And my, and I've said this before, my eldest son plays football. Um, he's a goalkeeper and goalkeepers, I think I mentioned to you in my email, they're a bit of an odd breed anyway, but the mentality of a goalkeeper, especially, I know this is a rugby podcast, bear with me a moment. They're very much on their own. So when he needs to, he, if he's made a mistake and he need, then needs to perform, he's got um, tools that he uses, um, mental tools, where he goes and changes the channel, if you like, and, and comes, you know, walks in to his goal. He kicks the post a couple of times, comes away like he's just switched the channel on, like you're not watching something on the telly that you're enjoying. So you just change the channel to something you're happy about. So, And that's kind of how he's he's been taught to cope with it but as a goalkeeper he's very much on his own if you're in a team and you're on the back foot like perhaps Wimborne is when they play their first game and you've got some players that are coping and they've got that ability to, to handle the stresses and some that aren't rather than just expecting the players that aren't to learn how to do it how do the players that know how to cope with the stresses help the players that don't yeah, so that I think that's key. So it's about, you know, it's communication, it's particularly like younger age groups. I hate it when, you know, my boy plays football and, you know, you see, you know, eight and nine-year-olds berating players for making a mistake, which just drives me mad. So it's about those players, you know, as coaches, you, are, you know, you know your players, you know who the ones who can cope with it. It's about them, you know, offering some advice, some encouragement uh, to the players, you know. Everyone makes a mistake. You've, you know, you'll get the next one. Let's move on from this. Not as opposed to, oh, bloody hell, you've, you know, you drop that ball and they've scored a try. I'm, you know, I'm negative body language. It's about managing those aspects. But also, I think it's really important from a coach in perspective that the players feel their the environment is supportive, that you as coaches back them, and that you know, and they're not going to be worried about what you think when they've made a mistake. Because I think. You know, some of the research I've done with younger players, that's a massive, a massive uh, stressor is coach and parental criticism. Uh, as the players get older, when, so I've done some stuff with England, age group players, England under, I think it was under 15, under, under 18, under 16s or under 18s it was, sorry. And we compared that with some of the professional players who, you know, players in their you know late 20s, early 30s, and they're, they're less affected by a number of factors, primarily coach and player coach and uh, coach criticism and also kind of the uh, what the opponents do so, so it's really important as coaches that the, you support your players and 
and make them let them know that that's you know that's the way you feel and and I, and I think hopefully then that should help not going down in the first place so, you know often you see, you know you see players make a mistake they're going to feel bad enough themselves as it is and particularly if you've just made the mistake you drop the ball you've missed the tackle uh, so it's about how players can respond from that and you know so coping is a is a key thing so the, the strategies that you mentioned there but it's also it's about picking the uh, developing effective strategies uh, one of the again one of the players in our research he was a premiership player who just missed a t- tackle no, sorry, it's just dropped a ball. And his coping strategy was there's an inside centre stand in a position so he couldn't receive the ball on the next play. So that, to me, is not an effective coping strategy. It's more of an avoidance coping strategy. Mm-hmm. And as a coach, you know, you wouldn't want your, your players doing that. And, yeah, so the, so it's about, the you know, we can respond to stress in, you know, different ways, but it's trying to be respond to stress in helping players respond in a, in a helpful and effective way. Do you think you should spend, as a coach, as much time on the players that can cope to help them pass that same mentality onto the ones that can't? Or It's difficult. You know, again, if time is, you know, very much a limited resource, it can be just a matter of just, you know, having a quiet, you know, 30-second chat to some of the players who you know. You can see, you know, the head, their heads don't drop. They respond quicker. It's just, you know. Make sure you you know you continue to be positive around your other players and making sure that you know if they if you see their heads drop you know give them some encouragement. I think that's yeah. I think that's important. Again, there's no wrong or right. It's just kind of that's what you know what I would I think would help based on you know some of the things that I found out. Were you going to say something, MJ? <laughs> I was, and then. The, the interesting thing that I, I like the way you spoke about then is, is I think you're you've got a really good realistic understanding of the time sort of pressures on it because in an ideal sort of world everybody goes oh yeah well I'm going to put just as much like you just said then just as much energy into the people who have an understanding of how to be mentally resilient because they need it but then you know I, I was literally sort of a bit lost in thought then about some of the groups of players I, I work with. I actually don't have time to work with the ones that are good at it because I need to work with the ones that aren't good at it. Um, but it's a really, a really, really interesting point because actually you are right. The lads that are good at it, just because they're good at it doesn't mean they're good at telling other people why they're good at it and how they're good at it. So actually for me now, I've just, just written that down now that I'm going to spe- allocate some time to work with my leadership team that is good at being mentally mentally resilient so then they can take some of the workload off us as a management and coaching group and they can actually go and do do some stuff with that because you know i do that for like specific skills with lads who are good at tackling or catch and pass stuff so why can't i do that with the mental side of it as well so thank you that was good yeah no no and, and also again and those players could improve just as much and become even better as well from that but yeah i, I completely kind of get that with this this time and that's and that's one, you know, I, I so I lectured sports coaches, uh, well, sports coaching students, who most of them are, you know, some form of coach, whether it's level one or a bit slightly higher. And that's one thing that we, we talk about, you know, implementing different uh, psychology in there. That's one thing that we, we, we kind of discuss. So one of the chapters is on leadership and it's about how to develop 
uh, athlete leaders. So essentially your captains and your, uh, and this was, and, and they would say the same thing. Oh yeah, but I don't have time to spend, you know, their, you know, with my better players. But then how do you, in some ways, if you actually work with the better players, you can spend less time in other things because, you know, they'll be helping out in different areas. So it's, but yeah, I know time is a massive, massive pressure. Mm. For everyone, yeah, for everybody. But uh, <laughs> I know so with coaches, and and you know, and you do get, I'm not, you know, you do get sports psychologists who, you know, who who maybe haven't, I'm not saying not played sport, but maybe unaware of i.e. the pressure on coaches, mm. uh, and one of those pressures is certainly a time pressure. Uh, yeah, I think that's one good thing about being, you know, kind of spending a few years working on the book with John Callard and. You know, lots of conversations with him around when he was with England's first team. It's just you kind of you kind of understand how insignificant your role is as a psychologist. It's important, but actually, you're there to really support them. Uh, whereas I get, I guess, some sports psychologists. You know, he's mentioned a few. I can't mention any names who have come in and tried to kind of take over. And it's it's about having a, a re, an appreciation of what your role is then. And what the constraints the coach is working with. Do you think that will ever change? Do you think it will become a bit more of a? I mean, it's certainly you know it is changing. You, know, you look at look at yourself when you said then you know there was nothing like that when when you were going through the system, but there you know there certainly certainly is now. Like even you know even at grassroots clubs, you know they're you know I've seen it. They're they're advertising for you know player welfare coaches. You know not they're not, they're not looking for rugby coaches. They're looking for people who can go and have a oh you know oh god I was you know. I was playing for the twos last week and now I'm in the fourth. Like, why, why is that? You know, and then going and dealing with that sort of side of it, it's becoming so important. But I guess going back to my original question, do you think it will ever become one of the main lookouts? Uh, I think, yeah, I think it, it'll vary from sport to sport. So certainly, you know, individual sports where I guess the players have a lot more control than I think it, you know, so I've done quite a lot of work in golf and I think it's, it's much more, yeah, it's probably more prevalent there. And I think working and having, you know, met and done research for quite a few high-level uh, rugby union coaches, there is this, like, kind of inner circle mentality, this trust, you know, this, you know, issue issues with trust. And, 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 and sometimes there is a conflict between, I guess, the coaches and the psychologists, or there can be in the sense that, you know, sometimes coaches might think, well, they're going behind my back, whinging to a sports psychologist. Yeah. The sports psychologist goes back to the coach and said he's been whinging about this. And then it, and it causes that, in it, that, that some problems, I guess. Uh, so in some sports, I think it will. In others, I think the role is, is important. I think as well at the moment, in sports that are like governed at institute level, so a lot of the sports that run under the, so the Olympic sports, they've all got uh, well-being offices, that sort of thing now. Professional clubs, yeah, I think it is getting better uh, and I think it will continue to improve. And I think more so that it'll be more about mental health awareness, mm. uh, more, potentially more so than performance issues. Amazing. I think we're going to have to move, you know, it's a, a sort of you know, a topic that we could spend oh, a, a very long, long on this one. Yeah, yeah <laughs> very long. But, you know, we've only got you for a limited amount of time. So the... Um, the next bit that we wanted to... Did you want to do half-time now? Yeah, we'll do half-time now. Do yeah. Half-time, yeah, cool. Yeah, so um, half-time announcements. Not many. Um, uh, win for Wimborne seconds. Well done, Jay, as captain. Congrats to you. Uh, a draw for the first team. Um, and again, 
uh, if anybody out there grassroots rugby wants to promote their club help get some support whatever we're happy to promote anything on this podcast at half time so get in touch on info at beam or rugby or on any of the social media channels uh, and follow us and like uh, and of course the big announcement jay you were gonna just touch on yeah just yeah obviously sort of the the, the news that uh came around you know we were getting ready to start training on thursday and we'd sort of heard that um unfortunately the queen was was unwell and then suddenly very quickly escalated and unfortunately she you know she passed away but you know the amount of tributes that have come through have been absolutely amazing and some of the stuff i've seen on social media you know what i saw today um they were like can you stop bringing marmalade sandwiches and paddington bears <laughs> down, down and stuff like because there's just too many of them which is I mean, you know, you could only ever hear that on British TV, couldn't you? But it was, um, sure. <laughs> it, it, you know, it was, um, you know, some of the, the, and actually probably for myself, you know, it, you know, listen to this, there was a, they interviewed like a, a, a taxi driver and, um, you know, your, your typical London cabbie, you know, he was like, God, she has been such a constant in my life for, for so long. And it was quite amazing actually to see how much she meant to so many people, but, but yeah. And obviously, you know, it's sort of, has put the sporting world to a bit of a, a pause and we had you know a lovely minute silence before our game up at Bridport on Saturday and that and yeah that's sad bit of news but just be that's we it. needed to needed to acknowledge it at least yeah um be more rugby the same as rugby full stop is all about respect so uh, respect where respect is due so we move on to the second half then um Adam, this is where we talk about our philosophy of the, the skills, um, the ethos, the, um, uh, the things that we learn in, in rugby that can help us in our day-to-day lives. Um, talking to you in the first half is fascinating anyway in the first instance. Um, but you mentioned also that a lot of these successful athletes, uh, uh, especially rugby players, we all know a lot of them, they go on to be successful in, in business, successful in their personal lives. What would you say um, rugby gives people that, that gives them that extra edge in, in their personal professional lives? Yeah, I think, I think rugby in particular gives, gives people so much in terms of being part of a team. So that's important. If you're, uh, learning how to communicate, if you're a captain, having leadership opportunities, understanding the importance of hard work you know hard work and training can lead to uh, superior performances in, in matches but, but I think also you know for my you know I'm still in touch with some of the guys I played rugby with and it was only for a short time in terms of my and uh, you know it just it, that going through those shared experiences seemed to last for you know for a long time and and putting your, putting yourselves your body on the line it, it, yeah it, it it's just, yeah, I think it, it just prepares you for, for for stresses and for, you know, for difficult times, I guess, in, you know, in, in your career as well. And also, I guess it gives you a form of confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, every time you go on a rugby pitch, I guess, you know, I, some people probably don't think, I said, I used to think about maybe the injuries, I had concussion a few times and it was, you know, when, do I really want to put my head there and... And then knowing that you've done that, despite those those worries, those fears, it, it gives you a sense of, I think, of, you know, of a, of a confidence that you can then take on into to other areas. That's I kind of viewed it that way. That's complete. You know, can completely agree. And you know, I've spent, um, you know, obviously, obviously can't name them, but you know, I've spent um, 
some time working with a player um, recently that has been out of rugby for, you know, we take the pandemic aside of it, you know, about, about three years now, but because of an injury and, and he really, really had a, had a tough injury and has found it very hard to, to sort of come back into it. But, and then I look at the stuff he does in his professional life and it's like, well, you know, you have taken stuff away from this because, you know, yes, maybe you are not keen to come down and do stuff down at the club. Actually, the stuff you're doing now, you know, and we were having a chat about it and, and he sort of came to, you know, the something that I could see, but he couldn't see that he's come to a bit of a realisation that actually I'm very mentally resilient because I've played rugby and because I've been through stuff like that. And, you know, but, you know, do I really want to be putting my body in those sort of positions, putting my head in there and stuff like that? He's decided no. But then the way he is in his professional life, he's more than prepared to push the boundaries and go out there and, and do stuff. And he's very successful because of it. Um, but yeah. Like I say, you just, you kind of made him aware of that. Sometimes, you know, we all have blind spots, all of us do in different areas of our life. And sometimes just someone actually just, you know, mentioning something, whether, you know, if you're a rugby coach, you're saying, you know, you know, your tackling has improved so much or this has improved. Just that little, you know, bit of encouragement can in increase someone's, you know, kind of awareness and actually their confidence. Mm. Yeah, speaking from a, a personal point of view, you know, as a lot of people that are close to me sort of know, you know, I obliterated my eye socket in a, in a charge down. Yeah. And, um, I must admit, for the first time since I've been 18, on Saturday, I attempted my first charge down since I uh, <laughs> uh, broke, broke my eye socket. But, you know, that, that's, been a, yeah. that's been a very long, you know, well, I'm, not, I'm not charging that box kick down, absolutely no chance. And, uh, and you know, I've, I've got back into that, you know, today. And that was a little mental note to myself on Saturday. I was like, oh, well done, well done, Jay. Like, you're either stupid because you've forgotten about it or you've obviously gotten over it. So it was, um, it was one of them, but it is, it is mental resilience, isn't it, big time? And I, must, I do wonder about, you know, professional players, you know, given that some of the severity of their injuries and, you know, how injuries are becoming much more prevalent and also the serious nature of them and, and how they kind of, you know, put that to one side. And, and, and I wonder, you know, part of me thinks it's because of, you know, it's their job and they don't have a choice, really. You know, they either... Know, stop playing professionally or or they you know they have to just get back on the horse so to speak but they must have some of those same you know same fears and insecurities that that we all have I guess. I heard um, a psychologist I was listening to a while ago was talking about um, memories um, and he said if you've got memories that are older than 18 months old uh, or you've been in circumstances that you remember older than 18 months old and when you think about them you get emotionally affected then you haven't dealt with it properly mm. yeah mm. we um personally uh, rugby's helped me and i you know i didn't play for a long time like yourself i played for a short time um and through just work and family life i gave up rugby um, but my youngest plays rugby and I see him going through the system and, you know, he's got aspirations to get quite far in his rugby life. And I've let him run with, with whatever he wants to do, same as my eldest in his football career, because I personally feel that if they do push themselves and, and in all your papers that I promise I will try and get my head oh, no. around them all, they're quite, but the stresses that you talk about in there, 
you're talking about the stresses and you're talking about coping with the stresses and in, and in rugby like you say jay like yourself you know, going for that charge down that you haven't gone down gone for that charge down for a long time but it gives you that ability to overcome things and and being a bit stronger a stress is important in our lives to make us stronger if we were pampered and kept away from any stresses we all go to the gym and lift weights and that's a physical yeah. we all go some of us go more than others <laughs> we go to the gym we lift weights we put our bodies under stress and the body responds by becoming stronger is that the same with the mind yeah stress is important yeah. so stress is is really important and uh and it, it kind of it energizes it motivates so for example you know who likes training on a you know on a wet thursday night if it's you know horizontal rain guilty yeah exactly everyone but you know we all know that those training sessions we go uh because actually we know if we don't go to those training sessions we won't play well you know in the matches i.e when they're stressful so having that stress so i do brazilian jiu-jitsu now yeah uh, yeah so i uh so I, last year i competed at the british open i'm going to go again this year and i hate hill running but i know that last year you know, I wasn't quite as fit as I should have been, and I've got to get fit this year. So I'm using that stress, the anticipation of the stress I'm going to be feeling when I'm when I'm out there as a as a motivation. So one, it can be used as a, I think as a really good motivation. Two, it, it kind of prepares us for actually having to perform. You know, under 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 pressure. You know, generate uh, emotional responses, hormonal responses. You know that fight flight uh, thing that get us ready to uh, to perform but the key thing is it's is is how we interpret it now we you know we can interpret stress as a challenge so focusing on what we want to do what can go right and not seeing the symptoms as, as dangerous whereas when we experience stress as a threat we focus on what's going wrong and actually you know if we start you know breathing a little bit we can start to worry about that we can start to feel unsafe and that's, it's just about realizing, understanding, understanding those symptoms are not dangerous and kind of reinterpreting them as, as useful. So one thing that that kind of finding came out in one of my studies when we interviewed that is actually a former British and Irish Lions player. And I remember at the time I was doing some of the work with John and I was feeding John Card, I was feeding some of this back. And he said, right, yeah, I'm going to use that. And I'm going to say that stress is like adrenaline to fuel your performance. So in the short term, it is. I think the issue with stress is, is when it becomes chronic uh, and it's something that happens. So you don't. So, for example, most athletes, virtually all athletes get those pregame nerves when you're, you're feeling really tense, which can often dissipate when you start playing. But it's if you have that stress every morning, every day, every night when it's chronic. And I think that's when it becomes a real, you know, a, a problem. It's unhealthy you know it's unhealthy it's not conducive to well-being it's not conducive to performance so small amounts which are managed are i think are, are vitally important because it gets you you know that optimal that optimal level to perform i can remember one of my it was my first ever time playing senior rugby and um a brilliant brilliant guy you know he still plays around here now and um it was it was with uh, an awesome guy called uh, Kev Kev Busby, and um, you know he's still you know still going strong at the age of one hundred and two. But <laughs> he, he's you know he's a he's a, he's a brilliant brilliant guy. And um, I was seventeen, and uh, we were away. It was a third team uh, 
cup game away to Swans, and um, and and I was like, oh god, you know, Buzz, I'm I'm really nervous. You know, I've only ever played like Colts rugby, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. And he just put his arm around me. And he went, "You'd be a freak if you weren't, mate." <laughs> and, and it's true. It's true. A hundred percent. And then after that, I was like, it, "It's definitely." It's become a lot more manageable, and you know, I still get nervous, you know, before before every game and stuff like that. And if I'm traveling away, and um, you know, a big big thing for me is I need to drive to games. I, I don't like getting lifts with other people. I I need to drive to the game. I I, I need to do that. And you know, I look at the sat nav and stuff like that, and it gets to ten minutes, and then that feeling in my stomach starts coming. I start, you know, I listen to a certain a certain few songs and stuff like that, and then that's it, that's done. It, it, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And then, you know, you get it before like the coin toss or whatever. And then I'm fine. It, it's relaxed and stuff like that. But I think for anybody, you know, that is playing rugby and, you know, is suffering so much from those like nerves all the time, no matter what age you are, just go and speak to somebody. Go, go, and, go and say, look, I'm struggling with this side of the game because people are more than happy to go and look, I'm struggling with, you know, my throwing in at the line out. I'm struggling with my kicking. Nobody's prepared to go up to their coach and say, I'm actually really struggling with the mental side of it, like two days before the game. Um, but yeah, that's a really good point. That one, one, thing can, one thing I can say for sure is uh, so, in the study, one of the studies I sent you over, it was with uh, an Irish, at the time it was a Celtic league, it was one of the Irish regions, professional team. All of the players subsequently were fully capped by Ireland. You know, I can't mention names. But there's two or three in particular who suffered really badly with with stress uh, in terms of mistakes, in particular mistakes or so missing tackles, uh, poor decisions, and and these what these players were playing at the highest level, of, I guess, of world rugby. They're internationals, mm. so to think that you know, you know, if you are playing, if you're coaching younger players, it's about explaining that you know it's not like say it's normal to feel this. You know, we know that all athletes feel this, even some of the professionals who are experienced feel this. And I think sometimes just reminding young players this can actually make them feel a bit better about themselves and a bit more, you know, a bit, yeah, like you say, a bit better about themselves. I um, I had an experience um, in business years ago um, where I had a, a very particularly disagreeable um, client. I was, was working for a company. And he was absolutely insistent on being as negative as possible and as difficult as possible. And he made everybody uncomfortable and not want to deal with him. But my position at the time was to have to deal with him. And I was, I was receiving, actually, I was receiving some executive coaching at the time um, through a psychologist who we'd sit down and we'd talk about how to approach things positively and all the rest and all the time. And she was very lovely and, and very helpful. All the time I was talking with her about how you approach this situation where you know you're going to go into conflict it was always about going into it positively and obviously in rugby when you're looking at any conflict in on the rugby pitch when you're going into a tackle and we always try and uh, and coach this you've got to go and meet that conflict positively you've got to go to it and you've got to be be positive about going there almost looking forward to the conflict because if you're standing off and you're nervous you're going to get broken going to get knocked over so i started to think while i was talking to, to her and uh, about these particular scenarios where you end up having to go into conflict i started trying to and, and you've spoken about this obviously about visualization as well um about how you would approach that situation positively 
and I ended up going to see the guy. I put a big smile on my face. I took a big deep breath. I made myself feel good. Like I wanted to go and enjoy some time with him. And I walked in, big smile, stuck out my hand, shook his hand, said how great it was to see him, how things were looking great. And I know there was a few issues and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden he starts backtracking, going, oh, oh yeah, well, I know in my email I was a bit difficult and it, it is looking good, but I am just a bit. And we talked and I, I, was, I couldn't have been more pleased to be there in that situation. And it was like I just bowled him over. He just, he started backpedaling and started apologizing and all, which he'd never done before. And, I, and it, it made me think, this is part of the reason I kind of went down the route I'm going down with Jay, with, with the, the Be More Rugby stuff. If you're on the rugby pitch and you have to meet some force that's coming towards you, the more positive you can be, the better the outcome. And if you think about it, you know, relating to a coaching perspective, if you're coaching, you know, I don't know, a squad of 20 players or 22 players, 25 players, you know, there are going to be players in there who cause conflict, who cause maybe conflict among teammates, who cause conflict with you, maybe disagree with some of the things you said are a disruptive influence. It's like, how do you, how do you as a coach help not manage them, but manage the situation to ensure that, you know, their, their, their negative impact is, is reduced to, you know, what it can be. You know, you hear of, what Eddie Jones said before the World Cup, he called a few of his players who he perceived to be uh, a negative influence and I guess at a professional level you know perhaps you can do that but maybe at amateur level when you're short of players it's like how can you work with those players and like you did in that situation to actually resolve the situation mm. make them feel better about themselves and so they become more of a positive influence and I, and I think as a coach you've actually done a really good job in that situation because you've you know you've someone who may have been a bit negative now you've given them skills you've worked with them to be more positive and that will have a hopefully more beneficial impact in the rest of their life, the rest of their playing career. How do you, because I'm massively interested in that sort of topic, how do you instigate that conversation with a, a player that is negative, that is causing conflict amongst your squad, that you know you, you don't have a good relationship with? How do you start that conversation? Yeah. Gets you to a point? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's really difficult. It's really delicate. And I, and I look at it as, you know, as a lead, I've been, you know, in my job, I have leadership positions now and, you know, managing people, work with people. And, I, and for me, I always think it's about trying to understand their point of view. So what is it that, what, what is it, what do they think about situation X or situation Y or the current, you know, is it their, so for example, in a rugby situation, they might not want to play the position they're being asked to play in. They not feel as though they're getting enough minutes, not enough responsibility. So what is it about them? Or what is it about their current situation? And then as a coach, you can start discussions about perhaps not necessarily changing situations, but actually working with them so they kind of see the situation differently, I think. Uh, it, it is hard because sometimes you just get, you know, in life, you do get people, you know, who just like to cause a little bit of trouble, but it's like how you kind of manage that. And I guess managing their expectations and yeah, there's no, I don't think there's any quick fix to those situations. It's more of a kind of a longer term process, but certainly initiating discussions with them about kind of their viewpoint. I think that's really important. And then again, it can maybe facilitate kind of a way forward. We often talk, on our podcast, we talk to our, our guests about what rugby means to them. We talk about 
um, what advice they'd have for players and and so on. And, and talking to you is so fascinating because you know it's it's there's so many lessons and like Jay said, we could talk all night. Um, so mindful we've got time, but just wanted to ask as a, a psychologist, a sports psychologist, what have you learned from rugby that helps you in your daily life? Yeah. I, the biggest thing I learned from rugby is that uh, when I feel I'm tired, when I feel I've got nothing left to give, when I feel I've emptied the tank, I do have more to give, you know, from a physical perspective. But then I also think that relates to kind of a, a psychological perspective too. So, you know, certain days when you think, oh, God, I can't, you know, I've, you know, I'm worn out, I can't do any more. Actually, you still can. And, uh, and, and that's probably the biggest, and that's the same from jujitsu. one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that you can always do, I guess, more than probably what your mind thinks you can do or kind of lets you lets you do really. it's always that bit in reserve and probably a little bit probably a lot more than what you think it would be yeah certainly yeah i certainly think it's about 30 percent more minimum if not more really 30. yeah I, I, in my experience for me anyway i'm sure other people have got they you know the warning signs don't come in their mind until they're you know 90 percent drained mine are maybe about 70 or 80 so i know i've always got more left and i think that is something i've definitely learned uh yeah definitely and you use that daily I try to, yeah, definitely, yeah. You know, I'm not saying I'm not saying I get fatigued all the time, but certainly there's certain times when I have done. You know, I might have been working on a, a paper, a grant application. Just, oh God, you know, I, I can't do any more on this. And actually, you know, you can, uh, and just you know, maybe sometimes just taking a bit of time away and then you know rethinking about something. That's great. So, what would you hope that young players take, like our academy lads, yeah, um, that are here? Um, but all girls and boys that are playing rugby that, that don't go into professional rugby, but go into adulthood. Yeah. What do you hope that they would get? Well, for, so first and foremost, I hope that, uh, that they enjoy their time playing rugby. They enjoy the competition. They enjoy the training. You know, my own son who plays football, I'm not certain it's the same for, and I think football and rugby are different in that way, at grassroots level, certainly, in terms of, you know, maybe parental pressure. But in terms of, of kind of what they can take away, it's just about taking away the times when they feel they felt under pressure and they've actually done something well. So they might have been a bit worried about making a tackle, but they went for the tackle. They might have been worried about charging the high ball down, but they did it. So taking away those positive instances where they were feeling a bit, bit nervous, a bit anxious about something, but actually they came through it. I think that, and that is a, life, a lesson in life that we, you know, we all need and it can last us you know, forever, really. Just to be clear, I got absolutely nowhere near that, Charles. The thought that counts is that. Oh, you went for it, though, didn't you? A big hurdle, though, isn't it? A big hurdle to overtake, over, you know, overcome that fear of um, what you're about to put yourself, you know, on the line for. So the next, so now you go and do a presentation or something at work that you're not, you're not a little bit anxious about. You know, it's remembering those things when you've overcome them. So what did you do at that time? How did you get over that? Well, I'm going to do that again this time. Uh, and I think that's a massive, you know, a massive lesson that rugby and I guess a lot of sports, but I think particularly rugby with the, the physical nature of it yeah. Uh, is, yeah, it's, in, it's, it's good. So when's your next competition in jiu-jitsu then? Uh, December, so the British Open again. So, yeah. So I'm training. I did some hill runs uh, the other day, which were pretty nasty. 
yeah, not good. But then, I, you know, honestly, I used that as so I competed last year in that competition, and I and I, I kind of expected that I would, you know, how I'd feel, and it, and I did feel quite, you know, anxious, like you say when you play rugby, of all those feelings. But I, I probably lacked, felt like I lacked a bit of conditioning, and I know if I get a bit fitter, it's, I think some ways it's easy to handle those negative emotions, that adrenaline. So this year I'm, you know, trying to get a little bit fitter for it. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm just going to try and look forward to it. And, and one thing that was interesting is that, so when I was there, I was like, yeah, I'm never, ever doing another competition like this again. Never, ever. <laughs> but by the Tuesday, I'd already signed up for my next one. So it's that, it's that, uh, it's that yeah, it's that love-hate thing, isn't it? It's like when you stop playing rugby, you miss the adrenaline. When you've got it that 10 minutes before, I don't think you miss it. But it's, yeah, it's summer, yeah it's something there, I think, so, yeah. So when you're competing in jiu-jitsu and you're perhaps on the floor and you're thinking that you're going to get beat, have you turned it around with that mentality of, actually, I've got another little bit in the tank? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, certainly in training, lots of times. and But also as well, just having confidence in my training. So having, having I'd say as well, I you know, my jiu-jitsu coach, he's probably one of the best coaches I've ever had in any sport that I've played and probably one of the best that I've, you know, witnessed, you know, as a psychologist. And I, you know, I'd say I have complete and utter trust in him. So I know that, you know, for any different situation, I feel that we've got something prepared. So if I'm in a bad position, for example, you know, I feel we've got something prepared that I know will work and it has been tested under, you know, stressful situations. So, so I think I take confidence from, you know, from my belief in my coach as well. And I think maybe coaches don't kind of don't realise how important they are, you know, in those situations. And actually, you know, they're massively important. You know, players often look, you know, look up to them much more than probably what they think and take confidence from them. I was very, very fortunate at the weekend to um, to play with a lad that um, I've coached for a, a couple of years and um, at, at the college I used to work at. And, you know, he, he left the college and I've obviously moved on to, other other things now and um you know he'd been a bit out of rugby and stuff like that and you know he made his his senior debut at the uh, at the weekend and I was very very honored to you know be a part of that and um you know you know he, he definitely nearly got the old waterworks you know, I, hope he, I hope he doesn't listen to this but you know he was like you know you know, you, you know stuff that I, I'd never I'm quite hypocritical because you know I say to other coaches that I work with and stuff like you know oh, wow you've had such a massive influence on that person you know you need to like take hold of that but then when you actually hear that directly where somebody says you know thank you for everything you've done and you know this has been a long time coming and you know it, it means a lot it's, it does definitely take you back a bit and it, it's a bit like you know I I don't do the coaching for the for anything other than I enjoy working with people and I enjoy having good relationships with people I honestly don't care less about like results and things like that but it is that other side to it that coaches and managers in particular as well need to need to recognize that they need to big themselves up a bit and say you know these amount of relationships they've built with people it is is such a is such a big thing there'll be you know if you've coached for a few years the you know hundreds of players or you know lots and lots of players who you might not think you've had much of an impact on at all and actually you know they remember a lot of the you know a lot of the things that you did for them which have you know really helped them out and that's the that is definitely the danger of you know in my own like sort of view we've spoken about with you know I, I've got a um, you know a couple of people that I work with from you know my mental side of like the 
the job I do and coaching and things like that, it is they talk about spreading yourself too thin. And because I work with such a, a large group of, you know, we were trying to work it out in numbers, you know, I'd probably end up coaching throughout the different environments I work with in a year. I'd probably end up coaching around to 100 to 150 different kids. Now, for me, I, I don't think, you know, maybe I haven't actually had that much of an impact on them you don't know like like you just said then you have no idea you could say something that just resonates with somebody and sticks with somebody that you think oh do you know what player a i have i haven't worked very hard with and you know i haven't built a relationship with and then you can hear something they say and you're like oh wow you know i said that two months ago and they're, and they're still they're still on it. it it is great and coaches need to take take note yeah, I agree. is there plenty of people you still keep in touch with that you've helped through rugby yeah there's I, I would say maybe keep it touch, but I keep an eye on them, certainly. You know, I'll always, uh, you know, coaches, players, you know, I'll often, you know, I'll know all the results of their of their matches. I always, you know, make a point of looking and, uh, yeah, definitely. And then, you know, we get the odd email now and again a bit, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I still always know. I know all the results, yeah, definitely. And I know, you know, some of them are international teams and, are, you know, in minor minor tiers lower tiers but i still you know make an effort to see how they're doing yeah definitely adam we could we could talk for hours and hours and hours but we are definitely definitely need to start wrapping things up just from a there are going to be a lot of people who i know that that listen to this that are going to be very keen to hear more from you so where can they find like your papers your books and stuff like that where can they yeah, find you i think prob probably the best thing would be linkedin uh i update that regularly i write quite a few posts on there probably two or three a week, which kind of reflect my research findings, observations, ideas for coaches. So LinkedIn, Adam Nichols on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Instagram, but it's probably a bit more personal, but A, a plus Nick. Uh, my email address, if anyone wants to get in touch, is a.nichols at hull.ac.uk. I'd probably say LinkedIn is probably the best, the best platform, and I certainly update that, you know, regularly. And obviously you got your uh, third edition of your psychology and sports coaching book out. There's also focused for rugby, which I highly recommend any coaches and players get hold of that one. That's uh, that's brilliant. I'm working my way through that and everything I've read so far is so insightful. So, but yeah, I think time has beaten us. As it always does. Jay, I think I've, um, oh, I've got so much from this one and thank you, Adam, so thank much. You. But, no, thank uh, you. Thank you. I mean, just talking about how you deal with the stresses and how those stresses can be positive, both you know, physical and mentally, and and also the lessons that you you gain from from rugby. Just like you said, Adam, that actually you can be on your knees sometimes, just generally in life, but you can find that little extra if you got that that mentality from from rugby. Hundred percent. What about yourself, Jay? You know, as you know, some people know. You know, with with the new job, you know, I've been very very passionate about the the life lessons that rugby can give you and the and the stuff that the other bonus side of that it gives you away from rugby and um, I'm very fortunate now to be able to use that sort of mindset within a job to help you know the forgotten the forgotten group of society and stuff like that and I, I think the stuff that you've said around around the stuff that we've been talking about has really really sat with me and I am actually looking forward to going and listening back to it because you know probably got a bit of cognitive overload i've listened to quite a lot and <laughs> taken quite a lot of stuff away and there's stuff i want to revisit but yeah just 
some of the stuff you said, Adam, really, really, really sat with me and I think it's been great. Yeah, so um, to everyone that's listening, I hope you got loads from that. And as I say, check out Adam's papers and books and bits and pieces because it's just there's so much good stuff in there to help generally in your day-to-day lives, your life, your your rugby, your sports, whatever it is, it's it's all fantastic. And um, and obviously get in touch with us, follow us on Instagram, on um, TikTok, on all of the other bits and pieces on YouTube. Give us a like, give us a follow um, so you don't miss any episodes. Um, Jay, thank you very much again. Thanks, James. Thank you, Adam. No, cheers. Thank you so much as well. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And to everybody else, Till next time, be more rugby.